Thanks for joining us at KVCR for KVC Arts, arts and entertainment, as well as the people and places providing it. I'm David Fleming. Today we'll hear from author Raymond Strait with biographies out on James Garner, Mario Lanza, Rosemary Clooney, and, and this is just the smallest of fractions. And he was, for 10 years, press secretary to the late Jane Mansfield prior to embarking on a writing career. Raymond, Rusty, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Now, in the introduction there, I mentioned you as being press secretary to Jane Mansfield, but you actually released a couple of books before the tragic secret life of Jane Mansfield and also hundreds of feature articles and columns for magazines and newspapers. Were you submitting articles to magazines before you started writing books? Yes, because Jane died in 1967 and I had to do something and Leo Guild, who was a writer friend of mine and he was with Holloway House, I started ghosting books for him and writing articles for different magazines that Holloway House was connected with. And that's how I got started into writing. Because I had been a singer. I sang with big bands and clubs all over the country prior to that because music was my first love. And then all of a sudden, I'm writing, and I guess that's what happens. Wow. When and how did singing start for you? My mother was married to a radio announcer, my stepfather, and he encouraged me when I was a little boy to sing, and he put together shows, and we used to go to Nashville every year, and then we did all these little towns in West Virginia. It was back tail end of vaudeville shows, actually, Mm. and I was known as Little Raymond Berry, and I sang, and then I would enter every radio singing contest around Charleston, West Virginia, any kind of contest, spelling, you, you name it, and I was for it. But I loved radio from the very, very beginning. But singing was what I really liked to do. With writing, you said that this sort of started after Jane Mansfield's death. At this point, were you looking at the experiences you had with her and then decided, okay, this is what I have to get out? Part of this was necessity. You had to find a living all of a sudden. Oh, yes, I was married and had two children, and I had to do something. And so I did a little bit of everything, but I wrote for a lot of magazines. I got connected with Holloway House because Leo, Leo was a publicist for Warner Brothers, and he got me involved with a lot of things. But yeah, I started ghosting books for him. Then I was a little bit in the uh, erotic industry for a while. That's where I learned to plot, (laughs) and (laughs) that's another story. (laughs) But no, I've done it all. I've had fun at it. I do it all over again the same way. So I guess with some of these magazines and the publishing house that you mentioned, were you submitting articles in hopes of publication, or were you actually hired on staff and then they would give you assignments? I had a lot of assignments, and then I got involved with newspapers, and pretty soon people were asking me in the fan magazines. I did a lot of that, too. It just sort of came easy for me, and so I did it. You look at Raymond Strait's list of books, And again, the ones that I mentioned just at the introduction, it's such a small fraction of this. I'm going to introduce somebody in a different way. You wrote a biography on George Clooney's aunt. (laughs) Rosemary Clooney. We became very dear friends, and it is the only one of my books that ever became a movie. And it was the CBS Movie of the Week on December the 2nd, 1982. I remember the date. But Rosie and I, well, we got along fabulously. And I got that book. 
<laughs> my friend Leo, they considered him kind of a hack writer, but he had a name <laughs> and he had a lot of people writing for him. I get a call from Leo one day and he said, you know, Rosie isn't happy with the book and I have recommended you. Are you interested? Well, of course I was interested. And so I met with Rosie and I did a story for, I think it was Pageant Magazine. I did a story on her and about her upbringing in Maysville, Kentucky, and she loved it. Then she said, well, I would like to have somebody else, and I'll take him. And I loved Rosie. And i got to tell you a story about that book. Oh, please. She lived in the house that had once been owned by George Gershwin. Oh, cool. And it had been owned by Russ Colombo, the first crooner before Crosby. And he had accidentally had a Civil War gun that was just a paperweight on a table. And he was playing with it, and it went off, and he killed him. And she bought <gasps> that house. And Ira Gershwin lived next door to Rosie. One day, George showed up. He'd just come to Hollywood. And he said, hey, Rosie, I'd like to borrow $50. And she says, well, I won't loan you $50, but I have a fence back by the tennis court that needs painting. I'll give you $50 if you'll paint it. <laughs> he said, oh, sure. And she took him to the garage and showed him where everything was. And it didn't seem like any time that she and I had been sitting there at the table in that very room where George Gershwin wrote his last song. On the piano was there in the living room right next to us. And he came in and said, well, Rosie, I'm finished. Give me the money. (laughs) And so we looked out the window, and it was painted. She gave him the money, and he left. And I said, Rosie, I didn't know you. I I assumed you had a pool. No, no, I don't have a pool. I have a tennis court. Would you like to see it? Yes. Well, after we finished recording that day, we went outside, and he had painted, sort of Tom Sawyer-ish. He had painted as far as she could see and left the rest of it bare. (laughs) Oh, When you write books with celebrities, you get all kinds of stories. Now, you've spent time with her. This isn't a case of reading about somebody or reading reports on somebody. You had many interactions with her and and actually interviewing her in person over coffee at the table. Oh, yes, and I went to recordings with her. I had a real good rapport with Rosie. That is really, really cool. And she was still alive when this book came out. Did you ever get any direct feedback from her about the book? She loved it. Yeah? Yes, she loved it. I remember what she told me, because that was not my first book, of course, but she made the comment to me after the book came out. She says, well, you stand up with the best of them. I'm not sure about that, but it was a high compliment coming from someone like her, because she was very exacting about everything. Oh, most certainly. Most certainly. I mean, she had incredible star status at this point, but... I never took her as a star type. Maybe it's a Kentucky thing. I don't know. But she seemed oh like she God. would remain. She, she made her. some wonderful pictures. She did White Christmas with Bing oh, Crosby. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. And she did a lot of television. Oh, yeah. She was somebody that people knew. Uh, no matter what type of music you may like, people knew who she was. A lot of people don't know it. But she hated Come On To My House. Really? (laughs) It was the song that made her a star, but she said, yeah, I get so tired of that. (laughs) What was it about? Just too cutesy? I know the song. (laughs) You know, I'll tell you a story about that. She was at the hotel the night that Robert Kennedy was assassinated. Oh. And she just didn't believe it. She went kind of berserk. It was all just a big plot. She was seeing a doctor, but she wasn't sure what was wrong with her. And she went up to Tahoe 
to do a show one night, and all of a sudden, it just, she just came unglued. She came out on stage with nothing but a coat on. She opened a coat, closed it, and said, that's come on to my house, and walked off and ended up in the hospital. <laughs> I'm glad this is before the age of cell phones. <laughs> oh, social media would have loved her. <laughs> oh, my God. Wow. Now, I've never heard of accounts like this, but this had to have just been eaten up in the newspapers and magazines and the And she was always sure that Patty Page was out to get her. And while she was in the hospital in a psychiatric ward, she looked out the window and there was this humongous billboard sign, Patty Page was appearing, and she was just sure that Patty Page had come to get her. She already had this delusion anyway, and then there was the billboard to sort of... And she was very close friends with Ella Fitzgerald. Love, love, Ella. I can tell you another story about that. Maybe we'll do that later. Please. I would eat up any of these and really look forward to them. Well, Um, I had a couple of good experiences with Ella. I can't wait. I would almost want to turn off the mic and just grab a couple of beers and just hang out and talk for the next six hours. Yeah, I'm Uh, I'm good at that, too. (laughs) (laughs) You know, what Uh amazes me, and the one thing you haven't mentioned, is how old I am. And, you know, if I bet on my age, I could be a rich man. Okay, Raymond Strait, Rusty, you are 93? 97. 97? Oh, yes. 97? Oh, my gosh. I I sort of feel like a 17-year-old trapped in a 97-year-old body because I will always be a kid. I don't have time to grow up. (laughs) One of the original cast of Peter Pan right here. Oh, yeah. At the origin, for sure. Yes, yes. (laughs) The first... No, I did not mention your age. I thought you were only 93. <laughs> oh, wow. What's three or four years amongst friends? <laughs> At this point, especially. Oh, my gosh. Wow. I'm wondering if dealing with the children of stars, this sort of leads me in a way to your book, Lose on First. We're talking about Lou Costello, so this is a playoff on who's on first. Here's what happened. Chris Costello was his daughter, and I did a story on her. She was one of my star babies and Mario Lanza's son. Ah. So out of the interview I did with her, she came to me and asked me if I'd like to do a book with her about her father. And that was Lose on First. And I selected the title for it because I thought it was just apropos. Absolutely. <laughs> but you know something? Of all of the ones, the one that had the most normal life as a child was Jeff Bridges. Really? Yeah, Jeff and I became very good friends. Those are some people that I've just always appreciated growing up. Lloyd, I would have been just a child seeing older movies of his, but both Jeff and Bo, I well, would see Well, he included them in his TV show. He brought them up in mm. TV, but not in TV. He tried to have a normal life. And their mother was a pretty big star, and she gave up her stardom to raise a family. And as another one, Peter Ford, Glenn Ford's son, Eleanor Powell was his mother, and she gave up her career as a song and dance woman at MGM in order to raise family. Wow. You know, with Lose on First, let's address that for a second. That would have been just a great one that would just draw me in if I were not speaking with you in person. This one would have drawn me in because I've always been a fan of Chaplin and W.C. Fields and just the early, early comics, various types of comic, let's say. With Lose on First, this seems to be a great one that could talk about instances where you have information coming from a very close perspective. Like with Rosemary Clooney, you spoke with her, uh, among other things. But in this case, 
you didn't speak with Lou Costello, but you spoke with his daughter and got a very interesting perspective, I would imagine, that you couldn't get elsewhere. Oh, yes, sure. For instance, Mm -hmm. Lou's sister said that she hoped that Lou never found out that Santa Claus wasn't real. Oh, that's kind of beautiful. And now I'm hoping we don't have children listening right now. (laughs) Oh, of course. Oh, now they they will tell you where it was invented. Yeah, right. They'll Google it real quick on their phone. I remember the days when babies came in doctor's bags. Because (laughs) back in the day when I was a kid, babies were born at home, not in hospitals. So you would see the doctor come by with his little black bag, and then when the doctor left, there was a baby. Yes, yes. And I questioned that once, and my grandmother slapped me. Oh, <laughs> you didn't mean to be asking a lewd question. It just came out. No. It wasn't lewd. No, I was 15 years old, and my mother's sister-in-law, my uncle's wife, had 12 children. I learned early on that how come if they were fat one day and the doctor came the next day they weren't fat, where'd the fat go? <laughs> and I got in trouble for that. Okay. But I remember once my aunt came by, and she was obviously with baby, and I popped up to my grandmother, and I said, is Annie pregnant again? And she slapped me so hard, she said, you're not supposed to know about things like that. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> that was what I was raised up in. <laughs> I was raised up in a very fundamentalist family. A very fundamentalist family, but you also mentioned a bit of a musical background as far as being raised as well. Well, my mother sang, my grandmother sang, but they sang in church. And my mother played and taught Hawaiian guitar, and she played and taught piano. And I always regretted that I never learned the piano, because if I'd learned piano, I would have probably never become a writer. I'd been singing in some gin mill and accompany myself till the day I leave. So you did spend some time singing. Did you ever pick up any instruments? I tried the Hawaiian guitar for a while. I, I always say I'm going to learn to play the piano, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. It's never too late. That's right. Proof sitting across from me right here. Yeah. Wow, <laughs> my goodness. I'm David Fleming in conversation with Raymond Street. We were hearing about the smallest fraction of what he's authored and at the age of 97 still authoring. We'll get a bit on Bob Hope and Jane Mansfield when we continue. You're listening to KVC Arts on 91.9 KVCR. Streaming live at kvcrnews.org. Raymond, there's a person that we have to hear about as he used to perform for service members in this area and for decades with USO, Bob Hope. Let me tell you about Bob Hope. Let me hear about Bob Hope. You may not know this. Okay. Bob Hope broadcast out of NBC in Hollywood, Mm -hmm. and the studio held 300 people. On March the 9th, 1941, his producer came to him and said, you know, Bob, March Fields out here at Riverside, and they've got 2,500 airmen out there, and they're just dying for entertainment. They'd like to have you come out and do your show from the base. Ah, they want to see me have them bring in here. He says, Bob, we only got 300 seats here. He said, well, no, I won't. He did the show at the studio that night, mm-hmm. and after the show, he said, you know, I guess maybe I'll try that, that <laughs> thing out there you call the air base. And he said, I'll go out there. And so on March 9th, 1941, he did his first show from any military base. Wow. He, after the show, and they were driving back to Hollywood, he says, ah, let's go back to the studio next week. 
The following week, he did the show at the studio, and then when the show was over, he said, you think you could find me another one of those military bases? He went to the naval base in San Diego the next week, and forever after, Bob Hope did all of his shows for military bases, except when he had eye problems and couldn't travel. This was the very beginning of that. It wasn't even a plan for something oh, like oh that. No. Oh, no. And wow. I can tell you something else about Bob Hope. He just did World War II because it was something to do, but he really cared about the boys in Vietnam, and he was so disgusted with the government because they lied about Vietnam. And yet, Stu Symington, Secretary of the Air Force, gave him his personal plane to fly to these places. I can tell you another little joke about Bob Hope. Please, yes. Milton Berle told this one. Uh-oh. <laughs> and Milton and Bob were good friends, and they were always pulling jokes on each other like he and Crosby did. And instantly, I was offered the Crosby book, and I turned it down because he wrote the forward to the Rosemary Clooney book, the only time Crosby uh -huh. ever wrote a forward to a book. And I knew they wanted one of those dual men books, and I couldn't do that to him. Good, good. All right. What happened was Bob was quite a guy with the gals. And he traveled, and he'd always have a hotel room, and he'd bring his talent with him. He never had anything to do with local talent. Mm. Milton told this story, and I doubt that it was true, but it was, it was funny. <laughs> okay. He said one time Dolores caught up with him. She decided to go see what he was doing, and she walked into the bedroom, and he was in bed with a chorus girl. And Milton said he jumped up in bed and raised his right hand. I swear to God, Dolores, it's not me. <laughs> I don't care whether or not that one's true. That one's funny. That it's, one's great. It's very funny. I mean, you so, can't yeah. laugh at yourself. There's something wrong with you. And <laughs> laugh with yourself. You have several books that are, I guess, completed or near completed, but you have several books which remain unpublished. Is this a matter of finding the right time or vehicle for release? I, I've or? got some books. Now, Dean Koontz told me one time. Okay, cool. He said, get rid of your agents, self-publish. Well, he didn't do that, but no. <laughs> he, I can tell you, if you self-publish, you make a lot more money because writers are the last vestiges of slavery. Mm. And I've got some books that I'm going to self-publish on Amazon. I've just been waiting. When the time's right, I'm getting ready to publish a couple of them in the next few months. I'm going to do Growing Up Hillbilly, and I will probably do... Bug House Blues after the first of the year. Those are both titles that caught my eye. What is Growing Up Hillbilly? Who is this one? My about? Life as a Child Growing Up in West Virginia. You? It's sort of a Tom Sawyer-ish type of book. <laughs> one of my favorite books ever. I look back at it and laugh at it myself now. Could I possibly have done all those things? I was always in trouble. <laughs> well, we were speaking earlier about Rosemary Clooney's reaction to your book, and she loved it. I'm curious of any times where after the book has already come out, where somebody has contacted you, and I'm not looking for drama or anything negative here, oh, but I have a story. Anytime, I, I know oh, yeah? exactly where you're going. Okay. Martha Ray's daughter, it didn't appear in Star Babies, her episode, it came in in Hollywood's Children later. But she threatened to sue the publisher if we published. And then when Martha died and she made such a grace of herself, she didn't open a peep when I published it. Mm. Was there one well, passage or another, or Martha, was this a whole... Uh, their relationship was sort of frayed, and Martha was a nice person. I used to go to her house to watch movies, 
Uh, she lived up in Benedict Canyon. <laughs> she was a sweetheart. But I'll tell you one thing. If you went to her house to watch something she was in, you better not open your mouth and peep. Because she <laughs> wanted you to hear every single word. But I love Martha. She was a sweetheart. <laughs> It'd be an honor to watch it right there, but also with her just right behind your shoulder there. You know, the one thing I think I had an advantage of in Hollywood, I was never starstruck. I was never in awe of stars for some reason because before I ever came here, I did a lot of USO shows when they would come to Charleston. Dorothy mm-hmm. Lamore's show, Greer oh, cool. Garson, I would always sing on the shows when they came. And Lionel Hampton was there and I'd sing oh, with him. Oh, wow. These were things that I did all the time, and I was used to being around those people. But i got to tell you a story about Jane Mansfield, which you'll find. It just shows you that some things are fated to be. Please. I worked for the Southern Pacific Railroad in Houston before I came to California. And Paul Mansfield, Jane's estranged husband, also worked there. He was in the publicity department, and I was secretary to the Secretary of Transportation. And some of the kids came to me one day and said, you know, Paul's wife is a movie star, and she's got a new film coming out, and we're all going to see it Friday night. Why don't you come with us? I said, I don't know who he'd be married to. I had no idea who Jane Mansfield was. He said, well, come on. We'll just do it for Paul. I said, well, all right. And the movie, of course, was The Girl Can't Help It. (laughs) And the minute she came on the screen, it just hit me. She needs a friend, and it's me. (laughs) I gave two weeks' notice, transferred out to Los Angeles, worked for SP as a traffic investigator out to Taylor Yards for about three weeks, gave notice, and I had no job. And I was living at the Hollywood Argyle Apartments, and a lot of kids that lived in the building worked studios. And Tom Abernathy, a young man that lived there, and I became friends with him, he said, how would you like to get a job in the movie industry? I said, oh, I'd love it. He said, well, there's a lady downtown in L.A. named Billy Cooper at Life Employment, and she finds jobs for kids in the industry. Why don't you go see her? Well, I went to see her, and she had nothing. Come back next week. Well, I went back the next week, and she asked me, she said, what do you know about business management? Well, I'd attended some business colleges, but business management was something I had no idea what it was. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, I know a lot. (laughs) Because I always figured if I got my foot in the door, people would help me. I'd just smile and charm them, and they help you. And so she said, well, he's a business manager out on the Sunset Strip, and he handles a lot of screenwriters. I said, oh, that sounds nice. Well, I went out to be interviewed by him on a Friday. We did the interview, and I wasn't sure I was going to get the job or not. And he said, uh, Charles Goldring, he was a well-known business manager. And he said, well... Ray, I yell a lot. And I looked right across the desk. I said, Mr. Goldring, I spent six years in the military. I've been yelled at by experts. And he hired me. And Monday morning, I went to work. This is the gospel truth. Tuesday morning, I had a little cubicle at the foot of the stairs. I had a kind of a chalet-type office upstairs. And we called it the lion's den because you could hear him roar. And... So on Tuesday morning, who walks into his office, all this pink fluff and poof that went to tinkle in the little restroom right across from my (laughs) office? She came out, she went upstairs, and she came back downstairs later, and she said, you must be Charlie's new secretary. And I said, yes, ma'am. She said, what's your name? And I told her. She said, well, Ray, my name is Jane Mansfield, and I'm a movie star. How would you like to help me with my fan mail on weekends? 
And I said, well, yeah. I did fan mail one weekend. And then I traveled all over the world with Jane. But somewhere along the way, we were traveling on a plane, and it was very turbulent. And I said, I was spent six years in the Air Force, and I don't really like the way this plane sounds. She says, oh, don't worry about it. She says, when you travel as much as I do, the law of averages catch up with you. I said, honey, Ooh. when your law oh, of averages oh. catch up with you, I do not want to be with you. And you know what happened? I wasn't with her because my wife was pregnant and didn't want me to go. And they cooked up a story for me not to go. And the last thing she ever said to me on the phone was, I wish you were here. Otherwise, you would have been in that car. I would have been car. driving the car. <sighs> oh, my God, Rusty. Yeah. Fate. I believe in fate. Those things don't just happen. Was there ever any kind of relationship with Mariska Argaday? Mariska uh, and I are very good friends. We've talked okay, about doing a book. As a matter of, oh, as a matter of fact, I got to tell you, a couple of years ago, I went into Beverly Hills. Mariska invited me in. She was appearing at a press conference there, and I went in. And I hadn't seen her since she was 11 years old. Oh, wow. When Jane Marie, her older sister, got married at the beach. And I walked across the room. And she didn't recognize me. And she says, well, I don't know who this gentleman is coming across the room. She says, but I think he's going to be important in my life. And he already gets the Academy Award for the best dress. I was all dressed in a white suit, dog to the nines. (laughs) And I took out an envelope and showed a picture of of me and her mother and Mickey at the Tropicana Hotel in 1958. And she says, Rusty! <laughs> and that was the beginning of a new relationship. And her brother Zoli and I are very good friends. We were on Facebook back and forth all the time. I'm in touch with all the kids. Oh, wow. That I is kept really that cool. up. You know, and I had to resist going right from Jane Mansfield to Mariska a bit just because, you know, you don't want to presume because she was, I guess, just three and a half, maybe. Well, you know, she and Mickey Jr. and Zoli were in the car in the back seat. Yes, yes. And the only one that was injured at all was Mickey Jr. broke his arm. But I can tell you another story that Zoli told me long after the book was done, or I would have had it in the book. She and Sam Brody, her boyfriend, were having an argument along the way from Biloxi going into New Orleans. She was going to go in that night after the show because she had a show to do the next morning. She didn't want to travel she'd go and get the night's sleep and get up in the morning at the hotel she and sam got into the argument she made him stop the car she put zoli in the front seat and she got in the back seat before they got to slide l where the wreck happened she made him stop the car again put him back in the back seat and got in the front seat otherwise he would have been killed zoli told me that story oh my god i've never told that story on air before I would have a hard time following anything after something like that. I just can't emphasize enough. I was looking forward to this. I truly enjoyed it. And I count on and really hope for quite a few more in depth on some of these things that we've just skimmed the surface on. But I greatly, greatly appreciate your time. I'm happy to do it. I love to do it. And I have sort of another thing that's a personal thing with me. To have a friend, you have to first be a friend. And if you want to judge anybody, look in the mirror. That's a great way to leave. I find lots of faults there. <laughs> I'm a friend. Call me any time of the day or the night. It doesn't matter if I'm your friend, I'm your friend. Otherwise, I'm not your friend. That's beautiful. 
Find books by Raymond Strait in most bookstores and online retailers. There's a lot to choose from, and we just heard only a portion of the conversation. Thanks again to Raymond Strait, and here at KVCR, thanks to Lillian Vasquez, Rick Dulock, and Sharina Wad. Music beds and themes heard on KVCR, it's composed and performed by Sean Longstreet, so thanks to Sean as well. Many past shows can be found through iTunes, Spotify, and NPR One. And most past shows are at kvcrnews.org arts. I'm David Fleming. Thanks especially to you for listening and for your support. Mm-hmm.